Brothers, welcome back for another episode of The Gentleman's Journey. We're so glad to have you here once again from the 180th Convention at the Marriott Town Center. Today, I'm very pleased to have our guest speaker here with me, uh, Alpha Sigma, class of 90, uh, Ali Farinakian. Ali, thank you so much for being with us today. I really do appreciate you sitting down with me. Uh, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Excited yeah. to be yeah. here. You have an, did you have an okay trip in? Yeah, I flew in from New York City this morning, a par three, my place to LaGuardia, LaGuardia to RDU, and then Don Beeson was uh, kind enough to pick me up at RDU. That is kind of him indeed. So one thing I've started off with just with convention and all this going on is every time I've sat someone down, I've just asked them, what does convention mean to you? Uh, some people haven't been to one before. I know this is my first one, let alone as a delegate. Uh, many people have been to a lot, but a lot of people have various things to say about how it goes, the experience they have with it. What is convention to you? Well, if I'm not mistaken, you know, uh, we were maybe at the 150th. Claude Macklin and I uh, from Carolina, we drove up there uh, to be a part of it. And I think it's a nice way for everybody to gather from around the country who are Kai-Sai's to uh, kind of do some planning and um, kind of collaborating on how to uh, take what Kai-Sai is at the individual universities and make it something that can be uh, greater than the sum of its parts. I think just coming here and seeing that there's probably going to be no greater place where you can meet so many people from so many different alphas, undergraduate and alumni alike. I think that's so unique. And I think, again, some things that you'll speak on tonight and just include like how special it is that we're here, um, how special it is that we've been able to go through this undergrad experience and continue to be involved as alumni. Um, so moving into early life. You grew up in North Carolina, right? Born in Iran, but you did grow up in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about your early life. Uh, what did you like? What were you into? And uh, what ultimately led you to Chapel Hill? Well, yeah, I grew up uh, in Connecticut. And then as a third grader, we moved to uh, North Carolina, a small wow. town called Danbury, North Carolina, population about 150. Wow. And that's where I really started playing make-believe, you know, running around the woods, playing army, riding motorcycles, chasing Sasquatch, riding our bikes. And I was there third, fourth, and fifth grade. And it was kind of an idyllic place for a, a young kid because you got to leave the house in the morning and you probably had a five mile radius that you could just go on your bicycle or motorcycle and just explore um, Little League there. And then as a sixth grader, I moved to um, right a place right outside of uh, Winston-Salem, Clemens, North Carolina, Bermuda Run. I was there from sixth grade on. My folks still live there. So that's, you know, again, I don't really believe in free will. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in clues. So, I mean, you don't choose, you know, the time in history you were born. You don't choose your parents. So I had no real say as a nine-month-old coming to America in the summer of 69. Sure. Or my father taking a job as a country doctor in North Carolina, which is everything that led to me going to Chapel Hill, which wasn't my first choice because the small country day that I went to at that time in 85, Carolina was kind of a fallback school. I mean, that seems absurd now. It does. Uh, but back then, you know, there were other schools that I wanted to go to that were out of state. And, and uh, but my mom asked me to apply three days after the application was due because back then it was just one page, no essay, just your grades, SATs, and fill out your, you know, activities. Sure. I got in, and then ultimately it seemed to be the best decision for me at the time. And, you know, I got lucky to go to a very good uh, good school. I think it's amazing, like the rigor that's associated with just applying now, and how and how much that's changed. Mm -hmm. um, like, there's people in here that are in state, and they take a considerable considerable amount of in state people that have trouble 
applying, getting in. People say applying is more difficult than actually going to the mm. school these days. So I definitely, definitely think that's super interesting. And one question we like to anchor to with mm -hmm. all of our guests is, what specifically made you one want to join a fraternity? And moreover, what led you specifically to Kai Sai? Well, ultimately, when I went to Carolina, I didn't want to join a fraternity. I wanted to be a GDI and, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of be a lone wolf and do my thing at Carolina. Uh, but after my freshman year, the lodge at Carolina was allowing folks to live there. And one of my sweet mates at Avery Dorm said, you know, um, my girlfriend is staying at this place called the Kai Sai Lodge. They rent rooms. I said, all right. I looked into it and for like 225 you could rent a room for each summer session and that was the best deal you could get because you got breakfast and dinner as well so i just for me it was a housing thing for the summer and then all of a sudden i met these guys that were incredible guys and i was like i would have been friends with these guys whether they were in a fraternity or not so you know guys like steve ducey mike eggwis you know mike mezzi dan goldstein uh fred weller james beeler who you know we're still friends to this day we keep a, a text exchange um going um so i really wasn't i didn't have a desire to be in a fraternity but when i met these guys i felt like this seems like a cool thing sure and as you know you're Alpha in particular, Alpha Sigma has a notoriously beautiful lodge. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, the lodge, of course, is not just a building. Talk to me about what the lodge meant to you then and still means to you and the rest of our brotherhood today. What is that in your eyes? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it is a beautiful space, especially the, the lodge at Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. Being one of the highest points in Chapel Hill, the amount of land they have, the building, you know, the resources. Um, you know, I was in Chapel Hill uh, doing a comedy theater project since 2017 to 2021. And I had my 50th birthday in Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And when I had it there, over 75 fraternity brothers showed up three decades later. Now, Chapel Hill does a lot of the heavy lifting because they're coming back to their college town. And they're coming back for each other and they just need a reason to. So I think that's really, to me, what the value of the lodge is, is that, you know, 30 years later, 75 people will come from around the world to be with each other for just a weekend. Mm. I think it's just amazing that and unique that a fraternal organization like ours values what seems just like brick and mortar to others, right? To the outside eye, values it so highly, mm -hmm. um, really dives deep into the meaning of what it is. For example, I mean, me being from Phi Delta, who we just recently acquired a lodge, lodge before that, Obviously, it's nothingness, and, and you're realizing that the lodge is not a physical space. It's, it's the people that make it what it is. Uh, we, and we've spoken to plenty of other people who experienced a similar feat or were in a building that would be regarded by the typical eye as, as garbage, rubbish, trash, whatever you want to call it. And just the fact that people still appreciate it so much for what it is, I really think it sets us apart as an organization, and I, and I think you know that as well. So moving kind of towards the end of your undergrad experience, you moved to Chicago following mm -hmm. college. Tell me about why you moved there, what that was like, and what, and what you sought to do in Chi-Town. Well, I was graduating. I was a fifth-year senior primarily because I met a bunch of guys who were going to stay a fifth year. Mm -hmm. Carolina's amazing. The Lodge was an amazing time there. And we all kind of one day in the uh, either the Alpha Room or the, uh, the TV Lounge kind of were decided I think someone was like, I think I'm going to stay a fifth year. And then we were all like, yeah, let's stay a fifth year. And I was young going to Carolina, so it didn't seem like that big a deal to stay an extra year. Friends were staying. Carolina also encouraged fifth-year seniors at the time. Um, it was Christmas Eve of 89, and I was watching Saturday Night Live, and I had um, 
legitimately what I consider an epiphany, where while watching it, I thought to myself, I want to write for this show at some point in my life. After Christmas, I went back to the lodge um, in January of uh, 1990, and I told friends about this, you know, uh, in, in a room called Grand Central, um, second floor of the Kaisai Lodge there in Chapel Hill. And, you know, to their credit, when I told them about this idea that I had, they encouraged me. They didn't say, you can't do that. What are you thinking? How are you going to do that? Pat Cartmel, um, who's still a friend of mine to this day, said, well, I went to Culver Academy and we used to go to this place called the Second City to go to comedy shows on field trip. You should look into them. I said, all right, what's that? And I had seen SCTV, the show, but didn't connect that with Second City. So I used the Google of the time, 411, and I called Chicago, and then I called Second City, and uh, found out about writing classes being taught by Michael McCarthy, who was a former SNL writer. And so November of 1990, I flew to Chicago with a bag of clothes and a computer driven by a fraternity brother, Chris Chapman, and Ian Taylor, to go start studying sketch comedy writing at the Second City. And is that initially, again, what got you this jump into improv? Because I know it's been a huge part of your life. Yeah, but I would say, you know, I was doing it all along at the lodge. Sure. They were very funny guys. We were always doing bits. We were always improvising. Oh, yeah. And these guys could play like they could improvise. And we didn't know really what it was um, doing characters or voices or imitating each other or doing scenarios. And I was already at the lodge because there was something called Coffee House, mm -hmm. which for us was our variety show, talent show that we did once a semester. And my last year there um, in the fall of 89 and spring of 90, I hosted it with a fraternity brother, Chuck Brown. Brown. And um, that was kind of like a mini SNL kind of feeling. We were writing jokes. We were doing Weekend Update. We were videotaping sketches. And um, so to their credit, they encouraged me to, to do it. And so when I went to Chicago and I started studying um, sketch comedy writing, I found out about the Improv Olympic and Del Close and the improvisation. And I realized this was a thing. And I ended up started studying improv with Sharna Halpern and Del Close at the uh, Improv Olympic and then got hired by Second City. And you were also a founder of the Upright Citizens Brigade. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, in 91, groups of us uh, wanted to do more than just improvisation. We wanted to start writing sketch comedy. So Matt Besser, Adam McKay, Horatio Sands, um, Drew Franklin um, and myself, um, hope I'm not leaving anybody out. We uh, started doing sketch comedy and improvisation at a place called Kill the Poets, and that became the original Upright Citizens Brigade, UCB. So yeah, around 91, we started doing stuff. How did you start to, I don't want to say draw attention, because obviously that's not what you were in it for. It wasn't a matter of who was watching you. You were doing what you loved. You were doing what you had done since the lodge. I mean, writing out jokes, filming sketches, that all seems not odd today, but definitely unorthodox, not something that you think someone typically does, especially with social media. Now it's you film a four second video, you go viral. Uh, obviously it doesn't really speak to what comedy truly is. Where did you really start to find traction in a stride when you got into all of this? Well, I think it's a, you know, it's one of those things where there's a lot of plateaus, mm -hmm. but I got to Chicago November 1st, 1990. And by August of 99, I was sitting in the SNL 25th anniversary audience as a writer. So it took nine years. I did take some time off in between where I didn't do anything for a year and change. Um, but it was just, you know, it's, it's the tipping point. It's just drop, 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 drop. And then at some point, you know, uh, luck 
and hard work meet opportunity. And they came to the second city in 98, I think it was, or 99. Yeah, they came in 99 to scout talent. And then that's how I got an audition uh, on 8H to audition for SNL and ultimately got hired as a writer in 99. Excellent. And you, you mentioned hard work. Again, while it's meshed and mixed with many other factors and things that got you to where you are today, what do you define as hard work? Well, I think it's different for every craft. Um, the hard work you know, a carpenter may put in is different than the, you know, the hard work someone who is in, in academia might put in. For us, our hard work was doing as many shows as we could. So getting as much stage time as you can, getting uh, as many rehearsals as you can. I was studying both improvisation and acting at a place called the Center Theater with Marianne Thebus. And so, you know, the hard work came from taking classes, studying lines, rehearsing, putting up scenes, practicing, you know, doing all those things that, you know, give you kind of invisible combat stripes once you get in front of a live audience. So I think hard work depends on what you do. It's different for an MMA fighter than it is for someone who's a stage performer. Sure. And going off stage performers, uh, obviously you mentioned that you wrote for the 99, 2000 season, correct? And, um, I can't imagine the amount of people you got to work with or encounter, uh, write for on a day-to-day -day basis. Who, who are some people you really connected with, um, whether it was fellow writers like yourself or people that were actually performing on SNL? Well, one thing at SNL that you know people don't tell you is as a new writer, you're only asked or allowed to submit one new sketch a week. So your name can only appear first in a sketch once. You could appear in other places, second or third, uh, according to whose idea it was. But so they don't, there's not a lot of pressure put on you in terms of you write one sketch a week. They tell you, look, we don't expect you to get it. If you get one sketch on all year, we'll be happy. Just, it takes some time to learn the place. But you know, the people I, you know, I enjoyed working with, you know, Horatio and Will, uh, you know, and Tracy Morgan. And, you know, it was a great cast at the time. And, you know, I felt lucky just to be in that environment and to have gotten like the 25th anniversary season. You know, you basically get the prom before senior year starts. Of course. And again, I have no intention of, uh, attempting to leaven you or anything like that. But <laughs> Tina Fey has said many times that she credits a lot of her comedic success or perhaps you as a catalyst for her. Tell me about like working in that realm and just writing jokes, not just because again, not everyone's going to be Tina Fey that you encounter and you're not always going to be working with someone who will make it really big. But SNL, it's a big stage. Tell me just like what it's like to actually get to write because eventually you do have sketches used. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's writing. I mean, writing, especially sketch comedy, you're coming up with a premise and a premise is everything. A premise to some degree is the wood that you would make fine furniture with. And then the furniture is only going to be as good as the wood you start with. So it's a matter of just any idea you get putting it in your premise file. So, you know, at that time, a premise file was something that you may have kept, you know, on a pad or a notebook sure. or a journal. If you were lucky to have a computer, you know, you might create a file on your computer called premises and then you'd have dash idea, dash idea. And the people at the show probably had 30 and 40 pages of premise files. So when it was time to write for a, um, a host, it wasn't a matter of like, what am I going to write for Danny DeVito? You yeah. maybe look at your premise file and you may think, well, here's something that he might be good in of a premise that I had. And, you know, it's just resigning yourself to a minimum of 
three drafts, the down draft, the up draft, then the dental draft where you're checking every tooth. But, you know, writing is, you know, taking this idea that you had and ripping it from the ether and it's all compensating for us. It doesn't feel like the way I want it to. It sounds weird. It's awkward. It just, you keep doing it. And as, you know, Lauren and the people at the show say, they don't do it because it's ready. They do it because it's Saturday at 1130. Sure. And to an extent, it's, obviously a very challenging feat at times. And uh, I think even a man of your stature and your practice would admit that there are times where it's very difficult to write. And you mentioned there are certain people um, that you feel like would fit better in certain things. So would you say that there are certain sketches that you've written that catered to certain people over others, not in terms of preferring them, as in it just would be probably better delivered by those people? Well, I mean, I always try to write what makes me laugh. Okay. You know, what I think is funny, what I'd like to see on TV, where, you know, and trying, you know, with Second City as one of my backgrounds, I mean, essentially we focused on social and political satire. So everything was either socially funny or politically funny. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes it could be both. Uh, but ultimately, I think a writer has to kind of write what they want to see, especially a comedy writer, sure. what they want to see on TV, on stage, and in film. You've written many skits. Is there one that strikes you as a favorite? And it doesn't not. You said you write for what makes you laugh, so that's important to note. Is there a favorite of yours personally that you've written over the years? Well, I mean, one sketch that I you know was was interesting to write was with my friend Horatio Sands mm -hmm. um, because it was a sketch that was the monologue for Dylan McDermott. And when we were younger, Horatio played an orderly in Miracle on 34th Street that Dylan McDermott was in. And then now Dylan McDermott was hosting the show. So we wrote a monologue about how Dylan McDermott had put the kibosh on Horatio's career. And now he was meeting up with him at SNL. It's kind of complicated, but when you see the clip of Horatio and Dylan McDermott in 34th Street, and then you see that they've reconnected here, it was just a lot of cool little things that came together that made it kind of fun and funny for us to do. Now, you are removed from it now, but SNL has been around for a long, long time. Uh, I mean, ideally, when you think about TV shows, even ones that are built on this kind of premise, they don't last forever. I mean, like no dynasty really ever does. Ever is able to last that long. And I think conceding that is just part of it. Why, why do you think SNL's been able to stay afloat for so long and do particularly well? Well, I think they've got you know a great formula. People love sketch comedy. It's comfort food. It's on Saturdays at 11.30, you know? So um, it works. Uh, there's always gonna be talented people around uh, the country who want to be sketch comedians. So it's constantly going to have people who are going to learn from other people and then be able to come and do this. And I, you know, I think it, you know, I don't see any reason why I couldn't continue on indefinitely because it's, you know, the way the show works, it's kind of been the same for the four plus decades it's been on. And there is that formula there. You know, it's like, you know, a sporting game or an athlete, you're not going to, you know, you only have to hit one out of three to get in the Hall of Fame in baseball. So with, with SNL, you know, maybe not every sketch is to people's liking, but there'll always be something in a show that, you know, hopefully makes people laugh and maybe think. Who were some of the guest hosts you guys rotated in during that season that you were involved? Well, I guess my first host was Jerry Seinfeld. He was great because he came and he sat with us in the writer's room and he was doing bits with us and, you know, um, throwing out rewrites and ideas. 
Um, Danny DeVito was great. It was fun working with him. He, you know, very down-to-earth, grounded guy that wanted to make, you know, people laugh. Um, Norm McDonald was one of our hosts. I remember seeing Cowbell tried with Norm McDonald, and it didn't get on. It went to dress rehearsal. It didn't make it to air, and then they tried it with Chris Walken, and it did work. Um, Jennifer Aniston, I think, was one of our hosts. She was great. Very funny, very nice person. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and plus, by the time I got to the show, it was a time where, you know, everyone was on their best behavior, sure. you know, and, but luckily, you know, all the hosts I had were, you know, nice people. And, you know, all I would have is good gossip to say about them. I guess, again, this is a little off topic. I guess Jennifer Aniston was at the sixth, seventh season of Friends at that time. Yeah. Yeah. She'd been on for a while. It, yeah. it was, it was 94 to 04. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been so starstruck. Again, I know that's <laughs> off topic. I just, I, I just try to imagine myself in your shoes there. Yeah. But of course, you were just doing what you always had done: writing, trying to make content. I mean, it, it makes it makes sense. Um, and I feel like a lot of times we forget that those people are people just like us, uh, and that it's not really any different. We've covered bits and pieces of the process, not just with writing, but the show process itself. Could you give some insight? into what a preparation week looks like until reaching that Saturday night. At, at SNL. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you come in on Monday and sometime in the mid-afternoon to early evening, the host shows up. And then when the host shows up, they go to a room with whoever's with them and then you can go into the room and you can say, hey, nice to meet you, my name is Ali, and here's some of my ideas, see what you think, because then you have the first meeting Monday afternoon or Monday early evening in Lauren's office where everybody comes in, all the actors, all the writers, you know, and uh, and the host is there and you pitch a couple of your sketch ideas, mm. right? So you just go around the room and Lauren will go, Ali, and then you will pitch one or two ideas. And then after that, you really don't have another deadline until Wednesday at 10 a.m. when your sketches do. And as I said, as a new writer, you're only allowed to submit one sketch a week. Sure. And then after the Wednesday 10 a.m. deadline, you have the um, read through of all the sketches. Could be 40 to 50 sketches where you meet on the 17th floor and all the actors are around a table with the host and Lorne and a few producers. And then the rest of us are just around the room, hair and makeup wardrobe, set design, writers, and you read through the 40 to 50 sketches. Sure. And then after that, everybody goes in, not everybody, the, uh, the host and Lorne and the producers and head writers go into Lorne's office. They pick 12 sketches and those go up on note cards outside the office so you can write there, see if your sketch was picked or if it wasn't. If it wasn't picked, then you don't have anything on that week. If it was picked, then you go to hair and makeup, wardrobe, set design, you start talking to them about what you have, your vision of the living room, your vision of what the, the, the people will be wearing, um, what their hair might be like. Then once that's done, Wednesday night is usually when everybody went out for a drink, you know, it was the kind of the break point of the week. Um, and then Thursday at 1 p.m. was the rewrite table where they divided the writing staff in half. Half went to the 17th floor, half went to the 9th floor. The head writers run the table, which means they sit at the head of the table and they go through six sketches in each of the two rewrite rooms. And each sketch gets about 45 minutes to an hour of just you know talking about it, trying to punch it up, trying to make it funnier, dealing with standards and practices at NBC that may have had an issue with something you were saying or doing. Um, the actors sometimes come in to read their stuff, but sometimes they don't because they're on the stage sure. blocking with the directors and they're moving the sets around. 
Um, but by the time you show up Thursday, it's amazing how much they've done in terms of set building and preparation. Um, and then Thursday and Friday is more rehearsing, blocking, rewriting. Saturday is more kind of rehearsing and blocking. You know, there's a 12 o'clock run through. There's like a dinner at five for everybody who wants to go to the NBC commissary. And then at uh, eight o'clock, they run the whole 12 um, sketches. And that's why that dress rehearsal is two hours long. And I, I tell people that's a good time to see the show too, because when you're watching it, you can't really tell that that's not the live show that they do at 1130. You get to see another half hour of sketches. And, um, you know, from there, there's a meeting in Lauren's office between dress and air where the 12 sketches become eight roughly. The running order may change. There may be notes in terms of how to punch it up or take things out or add things in. Mm -hmm. Then that half hour between dress and air, uh, between, uh, yeah, the dress and air rehearsal, you're working on it. And then at 11.30, you do the show from 11.30 to 1. And then, you know, pre-COVID, I guess, go out for the after party. Of course. Now, obviously, um, you have been in several realms within, you know, comedy, sketch writing, all of that. It's, it's not just, make no mistake, it's not solely constrained to SNL. Tell me about what came a little bit after what you started to fall into after your time with SNL. Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, uh, we purport, I have a comedy theater called the People's Improv Theater, The Pit, which the name came from The Pit in Chapel Hill, an area where everybody gathers and people walk yeah. through. Um, and one of the things in our theater we used to say is craft, community, career. Work on your craft and your career will come. Work on your community and your career will come. But just work on a career and you'll have neither craft nor community. Mm. So, you know, the people I had been working with in the community, the people, uh, the, the craft is the stage time, both on a stage in front of an audience or in front of a camera, led to other gigs coming up, right? Other people inviting me to, you know, be in a show they were doing or casting me in something. And then um, after SNL ended, I was kind of like, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna go to LA, maybe go to Paris for a year or something? And then 9-11 happened. And after that, there was a sense, and I was around 33, I guess, at the time, of what can I do to help New York? You know, um, I didn't feel like I wanted to leave at that point. And in uh, September 24th of uh, 2002, almost a year after 9-11, we opened up the People's Improv Theater and started that. Sure, and you have you continued with that up until this point? Yes, yes, however, we had, um, we had six businesses pre-COVID, now we have two. Mm -hmm. We surrendered our large 10,000 square foot space, we surrendered our Chapel Hill space, we're now with our original 2,500 square foot black box theater, and we have a bar called Pioneers. Do you have any plans barring any type of additional pandemics or national worldly disasters. Do you have any plans for any type of expansion or maybe community outreach? Yeah, I mean, you know, we were growing, which is why we went to Chapel Hill. We were looking at other cities to try to um, see if the pit would work there. Um, you know, we do a lot of corporate stuff, a lot of team building workshops, a lot of bonding workshops, listening workshops. You know, we just did one last week for Ryan Serhant of a million dollar listing. And, you know, so that's a way where we want to help folks um, hopefully practice the arts of improvisation in a more corporate or business environment. But we'll see. I think, you know, we're still a ways away from seeing what's going to happen with the virus and how things settle down. Sure. And again, just hopefully we, we see that we only trend upwards. Mm -hmm. It's very 
It's very uh, infrequent in life that we always do. But I, it has been inspiring to see kind of the, the resilience that people have been showing. And I think uh, we forget as humans how much we actually have. Uh, and I and I do think the adjustments have been great. As far as as far as getting you know involved goes, it, it's great to hear that you have something that's truly active and that in that you know you're truly making strides in places. Back home, you know, in Louisville, we most of our uh, improv organizations, actors, theater, anyone doing anything involving theater, comedy, it's shut down right now, and it's and that's tough to hear. It's it's such like an in- integral part of our world, even if people think it might be like silly or goofy, like it's not, it's not. Um, you know, every every Christmas I'd go with my parents to see the same, the same play every single year. And a lot of other families do the same thing. We'd go to shows all the time to see, I mean, not even just joke shows, we'd go to shows all the time just to be entertained or musicals. Just the theater, the stage, any type of performing arts just needs to be invested in. And hopefully COVID doesn't prolong any type of issues that we're seeing now. Um, and hopefully we're on the back end of it. Hello, brothers. We decided to include some additional audio from a break conversation that we had with Ollie. Hope you guys enjoy. As a writer, sorry, this is my last question. No, no, you go for it. Like, was it weird? I'm assuming that some of your skits made it on. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, was it weird having other people maybe not get the credit for the skit, but get like the recognition for the skit, knowing that you were the one that wrote it? Well, I mean, I went. I auditioned as a performer. Yeah. But they weren't looking for a male performer that year. They were looking for one female performer, mm-hmm. and they weren't even looking for writers. So they were kind yeah. enough to give me a job as a writer. Yes. And um, yeah, you know, with anything, sure. Would I have rather been the person in the sketch that I created at Second City? Sure, but it wasn't my time. Yeah. You know, you did obviously end up thoroughly enjoying what you yeah. got to do, and you know that that. that just, I always like to think like, I'm not like a no regrets mentality person, but I do like to, like, it's always important to appreciate where, like where you got, why. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it seems like you do that. And again, you credit a lot of that to the lodge, which I think is just well, awesome. I mean, all of it. But I mean, again, I don't believe in free will. Of course. Right. So it's like the fact, I mean, I'm 7,500 generations from the Iran area, mm-hmm. right? One generation my father, myself, and my mother came here in 69 at a time where SNL was happening, that a kid would watch it, that a kid would have that kind of access to playing outdoors and playing make-believe. And then I was from North Carolina, right? So all of these things that are just like, sure, it's coincidence, sure. But I mean, you know, it's just a matter of really keep showing up, right? Like the lodge, I didn't get in the first time because the first time I rushed, the fraternity brothers who weren't there that summer we're like, how come this guy, he seems like he's already in here and all these other cool brothers know him really well. It only takes three people to hold, to, to keep you out. Yeah. And so that spring of 87, another friend of mine, Dave Samuels, mm-hmm. who had come there when he was a college senior, he randomly, coincidentally, although I don't believe in coincidences, got placed in my dorm as a freshman visiting Carolina. So Dave Samuels and I became friends. Then he decided to rush in spring of 87. And I was in the Avery dorm where he was living. And he said, come on, man, let's go to dinner. I was like, ah, come on, man. And so I went back. And that second time I went back, I got in. And then later I learned that Lombardi had four rules he coached by hard work, second effort, loyalty, and love. So the second effort is a lot of times where people don't put in that second effort. So, you know. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I clicked record when we started. That's fine. 
can we use that? Of course, of course. Okay. Yeah. Me and him had to like plan on doing like kind of no like worries. That's fine. But one of the things I also say as an actor, one of the things we say in the world of acting is roles you're right for, you cannot escape. Ones you're not right sure. for, you'll never get. Right. So same thing I feel with property. Right. There was no escaping me being in a lodge. The, the path was pulling me that way. Right. I just had to keep showing up. Would you classify that as destiny? Maybe something yeah, else? Yeah, sure. Destiny. Because every, everyone has a different term for it. Yeah. You know, again, I, I, you know, I'm a man of faith myself. And, I, and what I would call it is like a plan, like mm. something that, that's been predestined, uh, as in like my actions are all already known, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Free will, it gets really deep and complicated, but I know just the, uh, like, I definitely think a lot of people will use the term like destiny, like this is where I'm supposed to be, and I think that's really cool. So, um, Mason, you good for us to get back into it? Just oh, great. Okay, so last thing we left off on was, I was talking about how I was disappointed that COVID had affected the Louisville theater. Okay, yeah, and then I'll, I'll move on from that. So you've discussed just your career, obviously a very long, fruitful career still going on, even, I mean, well into um, your later adult years, and you've still maintained the same enjoyment, passion for it. And it seems like, based on our conversation earlier, you, you, you contribute so much to that to just where you started in the lodge, where it seemed like so simple, where it just seemed like from an outside eye, guys cracking jokes, and writing things, recording, and that kind of thing. Did you ever think, like, obviously, you're a man that doesn't believe in free will, but did you ever think you would get where you are? No. I mean, because, you know, I really, it, it never crossed my mind until that Christmas Eve of 89 that SNL was even an option. Mm -hmm. Like, I never thought that. But I guess, again, because of high school English with Mrs. Stoltz reading James Joyce, uh, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, because of that book, you have the idea of epiphany. And so once you have the idea of an epiphany, then you're like open to epiphanies. And so watching that show that evening and being you know, a fifth year senior and didn't quite know what I was gonna do, that kind of pushed that epiphany up to the surface of I wanna write for SNL. And then going back to the lodge and telling uh, fraternity brothers like Alex Young, Pat Cartmel, Ian Taylor, uh, Peter O'Hara, Andy Basil, who were you know around Scott Sanders, Clinton Wilburn, uh, they encouraged me, you know? And like I said, there were a lot of funny guys who both liked to laugh and liked to do bits and crack jokes and do characters. And, you know, I was pretty good at impersonating other people in the fraternity. And I didn't know it at the time, but being able to impersonate somebody and then speak as them is kind of, you know, one of the, one of the tools of a, of a sketch comedian. So, yeah, I mean, I, if it weren't for the lodge, I don't know if I would have, that would have been my path. But again, it's it's all intertwined. Of course, you know. Lastly, uh, we always finish with a useless goofy question. If you were a fruit, <laughs> what fruit would you be? Wow, it's tough. Uh, I love pineapples, but banana is a solid fruit you can live off. Does that count as a fruit? As a banana is a fruit, yeah, right? Banana is absolutely a fruit. I mean, you know, God, I love pineapples, but bananas. I mean, you could really, you could kind of survive off a banana. You probably survive off a pineapple too. Hmm, but I love watermelon. Oh God, there's so many good fruits out there. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, this is tough because... Tough, you know, toughest question of the interview. Jeez what, Louise. What, what fruit do you want to be? Yeah, I got to be one fruit, but I mean, okay, I love watermelon. I love pineapples. love bananas. Mangoes. A good, ripe mango at the right time, cut in the right way. Um, I'm going to say watermelon. 
Watermelon, we're gonna go with watermelon. Yeah, because that you could turn into a liquid. You can, I think you can survive off watermelon. But if I had to survive off one food group, it'd probably be sweet potatoes. But if I was a mono farmer, if I only farmed one thing, it would probably be tomatoes, you know, which is a fruit. People forget that. <laughs> but you heard it here. Ollie, thank you so much for being with My us. My pleasure, man. This has been Ollie uh, Farnaki, and I really do appreciate you sitting down with us. Uh, and I'm really much looking forward to uh, your speech tonight. This has been another episode of The Gentleman's Journey. We do appreciate you guys listening, tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your week. God bless.